So our text tonight is going to begin where Kathy left off last week in chapter 2. And we're going to look at our text in three sections. In verses 5 to 9, we're going to see that Jesus is better than the angels and he's better than the first Adam. In verses 10 to 13, we're going to see that Jesus, by his exaltation, uh, bought and continues to bring many people to glory. And in verses 14 to 18, we're going to see that Jesus, by his humiliation and exaltation, became an efficient savior and high priest for man. And we need to remember that in our study, Paul is talking to the Hebrew believers who wanted to go back to Judaism. And he's giving them reasons why they shouldn't, you know, because Jesus is better than all of their former beliefs. He's better than the sacrifices. He's better than anything. And Paul is also speaking to us, reminding us why we are Christians and the importance of standing in our faith rather than going back into the world when things get tough. So let's look at our first point. Jesus is better than the angels and better than the first Adam in verses 5 to 9. So here we see, as Kathy mentioned last week, Jesus versus angels round three. (laughs) Our text opens with verse 5, which says, For he has not put the world to come of which we speak, in subjection to angels. And this verse actually continues verse 13 of chapter 1, which talks about uh, the angels as not being elevated or exalted to sit at the Father's right hand. And here in verse 5, the writer further states that God has not put the millennial kingdom in subjection to angels. And the word subjection here comes from the Greek word hupotasso, which is a military term, means to line up under. In other words, the angels will not be ruling in the millennial kingdom, but they will be serving. Jesus will be the one reigning and ruling in the millennial kingdom because he is so much better than the angels. Next, verses 6 to 8 are taken from a psalm of David, Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6. And when David wrote this psalm, he was probably outside in the evening, maybe tending a flock, uh, probably looking up at the sky and contemplating all the beauty and the vastness of it. And I can remember one evening many years ago, I was visiting a friend of mine in Banning, California. And her dad said, well, let's go for a drive. It was a beautiful night. So we went for a drive, and he took us up to the top of this mountain. And so when we got up there, he said, uh, uh, why don't you gals get out of the car? I was like, okay. So we get out of the car, and it was really dark. And then he shut the headlights off, and it was really dark. But as we looked up, we saw innumerable stars And you could see galaxies and the planets. And it was just, oh, it was so awesome. We just stood there and was like, Lord, you are so good. And your creation is so beautiful. Thank you. 
You know, and, and so in the same way, I think David here in verse 6 probably was looking up into the heavens in the evening, and he says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You know, the magnificence of the heavens probably made David uh, aware of the seemingly insignificance of man in comparison to the heavens. And he wondered probably how such a transcendent God could care about him and have him in his plans and purposes. And I'm sure that most of us at some time or another have stopped to wonder how such an awesome God can possibly care about me and about you. But he does. And Karen reminded us in her study, our God is personally involved and wants to be personally involved in our life. And he wants a personal relationship with each one of us because he deeply cares about us. And you only have to look to the scriptures to see how much he cares about us. In Matthew 10:30, Jesus says that the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, who but somebody in love would care about the numbers of the hair in your head? He cares about us to such details. Psalm 56, 8 declares that God keeps our tears in a bottle. I'm wondering what he's going to do with those. Psalm 139 says that he knew us from the moment that we were in our mother's womb because he fashioned us. And that his thoughts towards us are more in number than the sand. Can you imagine? He thinks about you. And his thoughts are more in number than the sand. Wow. You know, God indeed cares for each one of us. And his love for us is greater than we will ever imagine or ever know. In verse 7, David says to God, You have made him, about man, you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Now here the original creation is proclaimed. Um, Adam was made a little lower than the angels, yet he was created in the image and likeness of God, a type of the last Adam to come. And God crowned Adam with glory and honor and set him over the works of his hands. In Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the, uh, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And in the first part of verse 8, David continues to say to God of man, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And remember that the word subjection means to line up under. So God gave Adam dominion over the creation, and all things were subject to him. Now the writer of Hebrews continues in verse 8, saying, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. And so this is what God originally planned. He intended that man rule and be in control of the earth, and all was created for him. 
The last part of verse 8 says, But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Now here the word but marks the sharp contrast between the period prior to the fall and the period after the fall. You see, because of Adam's sin, he forfeited the original absolute control and dominion of the creation which God had given him, and he forfeited it to Satan. And as a result, sin and death entered in by Adam's disobedience, and it affected all of mankind because he was head of the human race. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men. And though everything looks pretty bleak at this point, God provided a way of redemption of that original creation. Notice verse 9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So here again, we have that word, but, you know, but we see Jesus. And this marks a sharp contrast between Adam and Jesus. The first Adam was responsible for the loss of all things. But Jesus, the last Adam, is responsible for the redemption of all things, making him better than Adam. The first Adam, by his sin, gave up his dominion over the creation. But Jesus, when he came to earth, exercised that lost dominion. And you remember in in the gospel um, messages that Jesus had dominion over the fish, over the fowl, over the wild beasts in the wilderness, over the wind. And today, everything is under Jesus' feet. Ephesians 1.22 says, And he, speaking of the Father, put all things under his feet. Speaking of Jesus. Notice next that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. In order to redeem man, Jesus had to humble himself, divest himself of his glory, and while being God, took on the form of God, the form of a servant. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 7 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. I like what Pastor Chuck said in his commentary. He said, Jesus had to become a man in order to redeem man. He had to become next of kin in order to redeem that which man had forfeited to Satan, the world itself. We see Jesus made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. As God, he could not die. He had to become a man and take on the limitations. And I think that makes it pretty clear. The rest of verse 9 says that Jesus came in the form of man for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And we see that Jesus, through his death on the cross, died in our place. He took upon himself on the cross all of our sins, 
and he suffered the consequence of our sins, which is spiritual death or total separation from God. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. And this is why from the cross Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that time he was enduring that spiritual death for you and me so that we would never have to be separated from God. And by his death on the cross, he paid our sin debt in full, and he freed us from that bondage of sin and from the power of Satan against us. And Paul says in Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. In 1 John 2, 2, John says of Jesus, and he himself is the propitiation or atonement for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus paid our sin debt to ransom us and to free us from sin and death and hell. And after his resurrection, he ascended back to heaven where he was crowned with glory and honor, which is evidenced by him being seated at the Father's right hand. That was a, a place of special honor. So we see that Jesus is better than the angels, and he, as the last Adam, is better than the first Adam. This brings us to our second point. Jesus, by his exaltation, bought and continues to bring many sons and daughters to glory in verses 10 to 13. Verse 10 says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now the verse begins with, For it was fitting for him. And him here is referring to the father. It was fitting for him. In other words, it was consistent with the father's purpose to allow his son to undergo sufferings. Isaiah 53.10 says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now, it didn't mean that the father, you know, was delighted. It just meant that um, he allowed this so that many would be brought to salvation. He endured this. Jesus endured this willingly. Verse 10 continues by saying, For whom are all things, and by whom are all things. And we know that all things were created for God and by God. Colossians 1, 15 to 16 says of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And Jesus is not only the creator God, but he's also the object of creation. In Revelation chapter 24 the 24 elders fall down before the throne and they cast their crowns before the throne. And they say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. 
And so we need to remember that we were created for Jesus to glorify him in our lives, to glorify him in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. You know, our lives will never be complete or never be fully satisfied until we start living for him. And as long as we live for ourselves, as long as we live for our selfish wants and our selfish desires, we'll find that our lives will be empty and meaningless and frustrating. And isn't that the way it was before we came to the Lord? You know, it was just futile. You know, but the moment we became born again, the, more, the moment we started living for Jesus to desire to please him and to glorify him in all that we do, our lives became rich and satisfying and fulfilling and joy-filled, even through the hard times. The rest of verse 10 finishes the beginning of the verse. It was, in other words, it was consistent with the Father's purpose in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, in bringing many sons to glory refers to God's plan of salvation in sending his son as the last Adam to suffer and die on the cross in our place. John 1.1 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And Galatians 3.26 states, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And as a result of the sacrifice of Jesus, he was made perfect through his sufferings, and he became the captain of our salvation. Now, the word perfect here in the Greek is the word teleu, which means adequate or complete. You know, he was fully equipped to be our savior, and he proved it because he triumphed over death and he defeated Satan as a man, the last Adam. But he was also complete in his sufferings because they allowed him to experience what we go through. In being fully a man, he was able to fully understand what we go through and to help us in our weaknesses, in our temptations, in our struggles, in our sufferings. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And because of his sacrifice, Jesus has become the captain of our salvation. And the word captain comes from the Greek word archegos, which means head, chief, founder, pioneer. And if you think about it and make the comparison, a captain makes all the arrangements for a march. And in the same way, Jesus makes the arrangement for our progress as Christians. A captain gives the commands to the troops, go, come, stay, do this. Jesus directs us in our walk through the power of the Holy Spirit. A captain leads the way and is an example to his men. Jesus is our example of how to live our lives humbly and in submission to the Father's will. A captain encourages his men, and in the same way, Jesus encourages us through his word and through fellowship with one another. And finally, a captain rewards his troops 
And in the same way, Jesus has reserved for us in heaven rewards. Spurgeon had an interesting commentary about the captain of our salvation. And he said, now seeing that it is the will of the Lord to lead us to glory by the captain of our salvation, I want you to be worthy of your leader. Do you not think that sometimes we act as if we had no captain? We fancy that we have to fight our way to heaven by the might of our own right hand and by our own skill. But it is not so. If you start before your captain gives you the order to march, you will have to come back again. And if you try to fight apart from your captain, you will rue the day. You will regret the day. So we need to ask ourselves, are we allowing the captain of our salvation to lead us? Or are we trying to make a way for ourselves? Do we pray and wait for directions whenever we have to make an important decision? Or do we just cross our fingers and hope that everything turns out okay? You know, do we study and read God's word to find out his will for our lives? Or do we just live each day hoping for the best? You know, God has provided everything we need in the Bible to help us to live a godly life to be those godly women that he has called us to be. But the thing is, we need to read it. We need to meditate on it. And I believe it's really important. We need to believe it. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And Psalm 119, 133 says, Direct my steps by your word and let no iniquity have dominion over me. And Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, 17, saying, Sanctify them by your word, by your truth. Your word is truth. In verses 11 to 13, the writer of Hebrews is going to speak about three things. About new life, a new relationship, and a new hope we have in Christ. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross And his resurrection gave us not only the gift of redemption, but brought us into a better relationship with Jesus. For example, through his death and resurrection, we have new life in him. Verse 11 says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one. And the word sanctifies and sanctified come from the Greek word hagiazo, which means to be set apart for special use. It also refers to the process of being made holy. And all believers enter into that state of sanctification when they're born again. And in this process, we begin a new life in Christ as we grow in the Lord and as we mature spiritually in him by applying the words to our lives. Jesus prayed to his father for his disciples in John 17, 16, and 17 by saying, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And this new life in Christ also unites us with Jesus and makes us one with him. And as believers, we have invited Jesus to take up residence in our hearts. 
And every day we seek to become more and more like him and less and less like us. We seek to have his mind and his heart to be one with him. In John 17, verses 20 to 21, Jesus prayed to the Father for his disciples and for us. And he said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. So our new life in Christ makes us united with Jesus. Verses 11 and 12 continue by saying, For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. So secondly, through our new life in Christ, we also enter into a new relationship with Jesus. We enter into the family of God. And Jesus delights in calling us his brethren. And it's interesting to note that the word brethren comes from the Greek word adelphus, which refers to one of the same parents. We become daughters of God by being born again and having our sins forgiven through our new birth in Christ. And as children of God, we become those brethren to Jesus. Verse 13 gives two quotes. The first one says, and again, I will put my trust in him. Through our new life in Christ, we're also given a new hope in him, which causes us to put our trust in him. Now, these two quotes are from the book of Isaiah, chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. And at this point in the book of Isaiah, the nation of Israel had rejected God's word. But Isaiah declares that he would trust in God, prophetic of Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is using the first quote to try to show those Hebrew Christians that since Jesus was the captain of their salvation, since they are sons and daughters brought to glory, and since Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren, they were not to go back to their former ways in Judaism but they were to trust in God as Isaiah and not reject God's revelation of his son. And in the same way, we are to trust in the Lord every day and not return to our former ways. The scriptures are full of exhortation for us to trust him. One of my favorites, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. We sing Psalm 56.3, Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. I've sung that many a time. Psalm 37.3 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. And so periodically, we need to do a heart check. We need to ask ourselves, where are we putting our trust? Are we putting it in man, 
in a career, in a retirement fund, in our children, in our grandchildren. Our hope, our trust needs to be put in the Lord every single day. The second quote says, and again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Now, here Isaiah is referring to the two sons that God had given him, and they were standing with him in trusting God. But the writer of Hebrews is using this quote to declare that Jesus is committed to stand with the children of God who have trusted him for their salvation. He redeemed us, and he made a way for each one of us to come into the presence of God and to become part of the kingdom of God. And he presents us as sisters, joint heirs with him unto the Father to share together with him the glories of God's kingdom. Romans 8.17 says that if we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And Jude 1.24 says that Jesus is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. So the writer of Hebrews is showing the Hebrews and us that Jesus, because of his exaltation as Lord and Savior, bought with a better sacrifice of his flesh and blood our redemption. And he continues to call people to salvation. So this brings us to the third point in our study. Jesus, by his humiliation and exaltation, became a better and more efficient savior and high priest for man. Verses 14 and 15 say, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now here the writer to the Hebrews is stating that through Jesus' death on the cross, he not only made a way of salvation for all, but he also destroyed Satan, who had the power of death. And the death referred to here is spiritual death, which is the result of sin. Now, the word destroy in verse 14 does not mean annihilate, because Satan's still around and he's alive and well. But rather, it comes from the Greek word katargeo, which means to put out of business, to render idle or inoperative. So in other words, Satan no longer has a hold over us because of sin. We've been cleansed from our unrighteousness and have been made righteous before God through faith in Christ's finished work on the cross. Satan's power of death has been put out of business by Jesus. He is disarmed. In 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 to 10, Paul tells Timothy, speaking of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
First John 3, 8 declares, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And one day, Satan will be completely destroyed when he is thrown into the lake of fire, according to Revelations 20.11. And not only did Jesus destroy Satan's power of death, but he also delivered man from the fear of death and its uncertainty. If we remember, the scripture says that the wages of sin is death. But because Jesus paid our sin debt in full, we no longer have to fear death. Because he lives eternally, those who believe in him as Lord and Savior will also live eternally. Jesus in John 11, 25 and 26 told Martha, Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. We have that hope. All people are appointed to die once because we have to partake of the physical death, except for those who are going to be raptured. But our death is not the end of life. It's the beginning of new eternal life with the Lord, which will be so much better than it is now. And how many times hasn't Pastor X told us that when we take our last breath on earth, our next breath will be taken in heaven? And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. Verse 16 says, For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Now notice, first of all, that in verse 16, the writer of the Hebrews starts out by giving us Jesus versus angels, round four. And here he It is stated that Jesus did not come to give angels, give aid to angels, because angels aren't the object of the work of redemption. Man is. You know, angels can't be saved. And angels do not die in a physical manner because they are spirit beings. But notice that the writer to the Hebrews specifically states that Jesus does give aid to the seed of Abraham. And why Abraham? Because in Abraham, the Gentiles were also included for redemption. In Genesis 12:3, God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 17 says, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, the verse starts out with the word therefore, which marks the conclusion of all that precedes it. So in other words, the writer is saying, because of all that's been said, Jesus had to be made like his brethren. He had to be incarnated as a man, to be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And the word merciful in the Greek is elemon, meaning one who could be sympathetic with man. By becoming fully man, Jesus was better able to understand everything we go through. 
He knows what it is to go through the hassles of life. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is not to have money for taxes. He knows what it is to be rejected by others. He knows what it is to be alone. He knows what it is to have lost a loved one. He knows what it is to be betrayed. The word faithful in Greek is the word pistos, meaning trustworthy. And as our high priest, Jesus was trustworthy and faithful to God in fulfilling his priestly ministries. He willingly made that necessary sacrifice for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God. And his sacrifice on the cross was to make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. His death on the cross fully satisfied our sin debt and the sin debt for everyone. Hebrews 10, 10 to 14 said, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And Romans 6.10 says, For the death that he died, he died once for all. And that is good news. The chapter ends with verse 18, which says, For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus was tempted in the same ways that we are tempted, but he never sinned. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows the temptations that we go through. He knows the temptations of power and the temptations of pain. He knows the temptations of popularity and the temptations of rejection. He knows the temptations of a boy and those of a man. He knows the temptations from his friends and from his enemies. In short, he knows everything we go through so he can better minister to us and to help us when we go through those times of temptations. Jesus can not only identify with the things we go through, but he can supply the strength that we need during these times. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the writer of the Hebrews was trying to show the Hebrew believers that all they needed was found in Jesus. You know, it would be futile for them to return to Judaism because Jesus was better than the angels. He was better than the first Adam. His exaltation bought and continues to bring many to salvation. And by his humiliation and exaltation, Jesus was a better and more efficient savior and high priest for them. 
And we need to be assured of these things for our lives as well. We need to believe and know that everything we need is found in Jesus. And he is more than sufficient for the task of preserving us and presenting us faultless before the Father with exceeding joy. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of Jesus, Lord. We thank you that he is so much better, and we thank you that he is all we need. Lord, let us not take this for granted. Help us, Lord, to appreciate this wonderful gift that you have given us. Help us to um, just really cling to him and trust him. Father, he is everything that we need, Lord. Help us to treasure that in our hearts and to seek to be more like him and less like ourselves, Lord. And help us to study your word, Lord. Direct us and guide us. And Father, I pray for every woman here present, Lord. I pray that you would hear the cries of her heart, that you would minister to her needs, Lord, that you know personally every detail. 